Welcome to Inside the Founder Studio with the California Technology Council, where we bring you perspectives directly from startup founders and investors in every episode. Now we turn to our host in our Northern California headquarters, Matt Gardner, founder of the California Technology Council. Well, thank you for that, Rachel. Hi, everybody. It's Matt Gardner from the California Technology Council. Thanks for listening today. In today's very special episode of Inside the Founder Studio, we're taking a deep dive into the process of manufacturing a drug. Uh, We do this in part for our BioCalifornia stakeholders and just as much for those that need to know more about how the industry works. Our guest today is Eric Langer, a friend of the program and longtime partner in the great state of Maryland. Eric Langer's firm, BioPlan Associates, has for many years conducted a survey on biomanufacturing capacity worldwide. We go in-depth with Eric on important considerations for R&D-based companies and the decisions they have to make over the long term, as well as contract manufacturers. We also talk a lot about the trends for workforce and those that might be considering jobs in the industry, and we look closely at the economic development implications for governments around the world. Before we get to that, I invite you to take a look at our calendar. There's always something new going on at the California Technology Council. We have some upcoming tours of some exciting venues like the Poseidon Desalination Plant in Carlsbad. You can keep tabs on our events at californiatechnology.org slash events. And if you're not already doing so, please subscribe to our podcasts. And you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud. We also uh, want to show our appreciation to Nixon Peabody for underwriting this great series. And, of course, to our friends at The Spent. The band The Spent can be found at uh, facebook.com uh, slash The Spent. Of course, you can always uh, support these podcasts in all of our formats uh, on patreon.com, and you can find us at patreon.com slash CA Tech Council. So let's now turn our attention to today's episode. Here's our conversation with Eric Langer. So we're here with Eric Langer of Bioplan Associates. Eric, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Uh, so Bioplan's been doing a biomanufacturing survey for uh, in its 15th edition, correct? Correct. Could you describe for us a little bit what that survey includes? We started this because 15 years ago there was a capacity crunch looming, and we wanted to measure the quantity of crunch that was really being experienced back 15 years ago in the biopharma industry. In other words, how many tanks were available and how much capacity was needed to produce how many, however many kilograms were out there. So we simply started as asking questions about the trends associated with capacity and how much capacity was available versus how much capacity was being used. And uh, we found that there was a definite correlation between um, the u- cap- capacity utilization rate and the um, and the sense that there's a capacity crunch. But what we really found was that the industry seems to respond to a um, uh, the, a concern about the overall capacity in the in the industry by hearsay, not necessarily by what's actually ex- being experienced. So what we wanted to do was put numbers to the reality of what's going on out there. And, and when we look at this over 15 years, we can see cyclics, cycles of uh, capacity utilization and capacity overutilization. So let me just try and get, get my arms around what you're describing. Are you talking about capacity in every category? Are you talking about cell culture as well as microbial fermentation? You're, you're we looked at, we originally bunch. looked at yeast, cell culture, microbial, uh, plant um, and, and 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 so forth, and we found that it really is eighty percent 
mammalian and 18% microbial. So we're not really looking at some of those uh, slightly more um, uh, obtuse platforms right now. There's still some novelty with companies like Ventria growing in rice, but that's small scaled by comparison to the Correct. investment in stainless steel tanks. Back 15 years ago, we didn't know that uh, tobacco wasn't going to be a major platform. And so we wanted to measure uh, how that was, was you know, emerging, but we saw that mammalian really does continue to dominate. Okay. So uh, in the long sense, uh, where are we in the kind of generational cycle of investment in plant and equipment? Can you give a sense of the last two or three surveys and what they've shown you in the cycle? What we're seeing in this, in this, this study, and by the way, this is, the study is done by anywhere from 350, 250 to 350 bioprocessing decision makers every year. So it's a major study, and it takes them a long time to do this, to fill out this uh, analysis. Um, so I think it's fairly analytical, or, and uh, we can look at global data, and we can parse the data based on region and so forth. Um, so I think it's fairly uh, accurate um, in terms of demographics and so forth. And what we're seeing is a one of the key issues that we're seeing in multiple parts of this rather lengthy study is that manufacturing productivity and efficiency is remains the number one area of concern with bioprocessors. Manufacturing efficiency is what I consider to be a degree of maturation in the industry. Back 20, 30 years ago, it was all about burn rate and are we going to go out of business, so who cares how expensive it is? If we can't make the drug, we can't sell the drug, and then we're gone, we all go home. Now it's all about um, can we make the cost of goods 10% uh, less? And that's a huge shift over the last five years. So um, are we seeing the, the, the same sort of state of affairs in Western Europe, the U.S., and in the Pacific Rim? Or are we seeing kind of a varying cycle for investment in, in stainless steel and in different parts of the world. Uh, the, it's interesting you mentioned that. Just today I'm talking with somebody uh, in, in uh, South America about the relevant uh, benefits of single-use versus stainless steel. Uh, so that argument, I think, has been laid to rest in U.S. and Europe. That was laid to rest probably five or ten years ago uh, with pockets of debate. But I think right now with 80-plus percent of uh, clinical capacity being done in single-use, um, there's, you know, there's no question the, about its applicability. The question is, do we scale up into commercial scale into stainless? And that's going to be not based so much on whether or not plastic is cheaper in in the long term when you do the, you know, do the analysis, but rather, how many kilos uh, of product do we need, and does it make sense? You know, is there a business case for one or the other? So it's not a question of things that we were seeing before, like breakage. Uh, leachables and extractables, uh, cell growth capability in plastic. It's all about, we know it's going to work. Will it work for our scale or will it work for our application? So to your question about is it going to be the, um, the same kind of calculus in the Pacific Rim or emerging regions, no, not in the short term. In the short term, it's going to be about things like is it cost effective for us to even consider building a stainless steel plant when we don't have any money? So single use is going to take, in my mind, is, say for instance in China or in India, where capacity, uh, I'm sorry, quality systems are not necessarily built into a stainless plant. You have to build it into the plastics, 
or into the plastic operations. So if you can build those quality systems into a GMP single-use bag or bioreactor and a, and a protocol or a process, then you're a step ahead. So that's another factor. We don't. We have legacy in the U.S. and Europe. We've got legacy facilities and legacy people. Um, they don't have that so much. So they're starting greenfield. And if you've got a greenfield situation, why not look at what's going to be best um, when, you, when you're missing? Yeah, yeah. When you're missing uh, parts, especially when you're talking about things like um, uh, contamination events. If, you, if breakage no longer becomes an issue or leakage, then your your concern would likely be handling and operator mismanagement. If you don't have that so much with a single-use connector, you know you're talking about a, better, a different game. Let's talk a little bit about the, the kind of early stage biotech. The average, let's say, uh, somewhere between seed and Series A company that's preclinical, still working on compounds. Can you describe for that kind of company why it's important to just be aware of where the contract manufacturers are in their own capacity? Yeah, and when we look at the capacity survey, we also break out uh, CMOs versus the biopharmaceutical developers. And you'll see that the CMOs have a uh, vested interest in matching their capacity to a, a, a very specific number range because if they are over capacity, uh, then they have to turn down projects that are, and that means turn down profitability. If they're under capacity, it's the other way around. So they need to have that balance um, fairly well uh, allocated, and they won't build out capacity unless they know that they can fill it. Fill it. So uh, uh, you can say, well, we can build uh, more stainless steel at a CMO um, if that's necessary. But that if that's necessary becomes the operative term. So uh, the the bigger challenge with CMOs is not the capacity for two reasons. One is single-use you know, companies like, uh, like CMC, who's now Asahi Glass, um, in Copenhagen and in Washington State are daisy-chaining 2,000-liter bioreactors together. So if you, you need 2,000 liters, you need 6,000 liters, you can do that in the same suite uh, without uh, having to build out. What you're missing so in other words, capacity can be a factor of almost 10 uh, variable based on not the suite size, but how many single-use bags you're uh, uh, attaching. So all of a sudden, physical capacity, leader capacity, is becomes kind of an irrelevancy. What becomes more critical is the um, people that can handle that. So the capacity is no longer defined so much by leaders and tankage. It's defined by how many people you can, smart people you have to actually do that operation at GMP in a way that's not going to cause your client uh, a heartache. So let's talk about the workforce factors here. So there are new facilities coming online in places like Houston and Singapore. What are the workforce issues you're seeing in the survey uh, that come up as a priority as well? Well, one of the questions in the chapters, the 13 chapters we air, areas we, we discuss is, is hiring challenges. And uh, over the last probably 10 years or so, 12 years, we've m mapped the uh, hiring challenges that the biopharma uh, facilities are experiencing. And we've seen a significant growth year on year of the percentage of companies that are actually having you know, difficulties hiring the right people for the specific types of jobs. And the biggest headaches are process development and the operators in upstream uh, and downstream. Downstream is slightly more challenging today because downstream capacity is, uh, is a bit of a bottleneck. Um, so 
if it's not a question of whether or not you've got the tanks. It's a question of whether or not you got you can hire an operator. So our experience, our expectation is what we're going to see is, frankly, poaching from company A to company B. So. You know, big old company has uh, you know invests in a person who's got this uh, you know master's degree or something, and they will uh, train them for a year, and after that year, their value goes from X to you know a whole lot more, and somebody at company B will say, "That's our biggest capacity crunch. We're losing a million dollars a day. What do we care?" So what I think we're going to what what, it, what that person costs. What I think we're going to see over the short term, at least, is a hiring. Um, challenge and a uh, an increase in the cost of labor, and that cost of labor is likely going to start to 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 fold into overseas markets as well. So, um, areas like uh, emerging areas like China, who had had have had the haigui, um, the re returnees um, seeking that expertise, are going to find it more and more difficult to bring those kinds of people into the uh, into their facilities because. They need to be trained, so they're bringing them in from other areas, um, other regions rather. And if they're that much more expensive than they had been just five years ago, it's going to increase the cost and the, the, that analysis of how much manufacturing in those regions is going to end up costing them as well. So there's, of course, a I think in a formula for regional innovation, there's mm -hmm. always a calculus about what critical mass constitutes. So if you have multiple employers, employees can jump back and forth and have opportunity to move laterally, sometimes to move up. In smaller economies, that's tough. And so I want to ask you a question about U.S. regions of innovation in order to get to a, maybe a global comparison. If you're in an established market where that workforce training model has been in place for a while, let's say you're Baxter in Chicago, uh, all those manufacturers in, in uh, that kind of Boston corridor in New Hampshire where all the capacity has been built, is your answer to the workforce question different than it is in Washington State or in Houston, or is there an advantage if you're in Houston to the fact that they've got all these chemical engineering programs that have existed because of the petrochemical industry for, for decades? That's a real good question, and um, we can look at the chemical engineering side of it. Uh, my thinking, and one of the questions we added to the survey this year, was whether or not we look a little closer to home, and biopharma uh, is much closer, especially as, as you know, mergers and acquisitions happen, biopharma is much closer to pharma than it is to chemical engineering and petroleum. So one of the questions we asked already is, is and we're, we're wait, eagerly awaiting the, the results, is to what extent have the biopharma companies considered their, their uh, pharma colleagues in terms of being able to hire and train and, therefore, and then train? Um, you know, in 10 years ago, people thought biopharma literally was a totally different industry. Uh, I think people have completely shifted that mentality, and now they realize biopharma is simply a, a, a different delivery system to the patient. It's not really that much different in terms of a GMP manufacturing. So why not take a look at a little more closer to home um, at, at how that hiring could potentially take place? Certainly, the chemical engineering um, environment has you know potential, but let's face it: people that are going into petroleum geology or something like that have a different mindset, a totally different mindset from people that go into healthcare. You know, they're not necessarily thinking about what they're doing as contributing to the curing of cancer. And I think there's there's a very consistent um, theme around people that get into this healthcare industry where what we're doing here has a greater good, and, as opposed to simply finding that next oil well. Well, so let's look at the global picture for a minute. It, 
for those of us that have spent time in economic development, one of the most interesting laboratories for economic delta is Singapore. It's always the case. And so here's Singapore making massive catch-up investments in this kind of capacity, and they have for about a decade. Uh, is it possible to catch up in this space? If you were, you know, Scotland or Ireland or Eastern Europe or Russia or, um, you know, country X, is it possible to leap ahead because of the single-use technologies and jump right to the, the state of the art in biomanufacturing? It's a very good question. I think the answer is yes. Uh, it, again, it goes to the equipment you're using and the people you bring in. Um, if you bring in somebody from, from a, a major uh, biopharma facility who knows how it's done, or you bring in enough critical mass within a facility, whether it be in Singapore or in Beijing or, or uh, in Mumbai, they'll know how it's supposed to be done. And they'll, it's been my experience when talking with many of these people over the decades that they want to do it right and they know what's not right. So um, if, if you can jumpstart a, a region, say South America, you're going to need to have a, uh, uh, an investment not just in facilities, and we've seen that. You can build a great facility, but if you don't have the people to run it, and they, just to, to your prior question, if you don't have the critical mass of people who can move from, who know they can move from company A to company B, nobody wants to be captive to company A. So if you don't have that, that ability in your career to advance, outside of that, that uh, organization, it's not going to be nearly as attractive. So it has to be a strategic approach to um, regional development. And uh, it, so the short answer is yes, it can be done. And China is a perfect example. We look at, we just completed our, um, our, our update of our second edition top 60 biopharma facilities in China. We've done, 10 years ago, we did uh, the first edition. And we waited 10 years for that environment to develop. And what we saw 10 years ago was dramatically different from what we see now. Um, and the key element that I think is mo most important is the growth rate. So we're seeing, uh, we haven't yet seen an inflection point in the shift in the, the slowdown of the growth rate in China right now. So it, it's growing now, whereas the facilities here are growing at maybe you know, 10% in terms of capacity and so forth. In China, they're growing double that. Of course, they're starting from a way, way smaller base, but if that continues to expand as investment comes in, and just yesterday, I believe, we heard the announcement that China has established a, um, uh, a, uh, 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 an index, a stock index, specifically for biotech in China. Bang! So now you're talking about the ability to measure not just things like capacity, but you're talking about things like value. Now, what's the value of the China biopharma market? If, um, uh, if, if you can measure that, now you're talking about the ability to enter and exit a, uh, uh, an opportunity, which is going to increase the investment uh, climate there and opportunities. So those investments are, depending on how they shift their regulatory um, uh, you know, uh, uh, processes in China, who can own whom, um, it's going to change a little bit, but let's face it, when you've got this kind of investment opportunity and you're seeing growth rate, uh, you don't, it doesn't take too much of, a, of an analysis to say, this is, uh, if I can get 20, 25% growth rate, I, I think I'll look at this area, especially when you're talking about a, you know, a third of the 
the, the, the world's population needing a, a particular type of product. So the big question is not can they do it, but they're clearly, do, they're clearly doing it now. Behringer is doing it. GE is providing this resources, for instance. Um, many, many other vendors are, are actively uh, engaged there, so you've got the critical mass of suppliers. You've, and some of these suppliers have been there for 50 years, and in China it's important to have 50-year um, uh, uh, presence in order to make that leap. So that, uh, it's, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when we're going to see an inflection point in the slowdown of the growth rate in China. And that that may not come for the in the in the short term. We so the last few years have seen huge announcements in you know South Korea, and India, and Brazil. Are there others that uh, surprised you about where capacity was being added? Um, frankly, what's uh, when we look at Korea, for instance, South Korea, and the and the capacity that's being added there. Uh, obviously, that's a, those are they're, uh, they're beyond giant facilities. Um, the capacity and the capabilities of being able to produce there uh, is going to be dependent on how many drugs they're going to plan to make for what markets. And you know they could produce uh, some of those those facilities could produce enough biosimilar to meet the needs uh, for a number of of blockbuster drugs around the world. So that's a big question. How will that start? Because they can make it and they can make it at GMP, how is that going to start to affect the, um, the cost of innovative drugs? One thing it's going to do is it's going to change, because biosimilars by their nature need to be made efficiently, they're going to be building that, and it goes back to our original comment from the, our conversation here, efficiency and productivity. How are they going to be able to lower cost of goods? How are they going to be able to produce a little bit more with a few, fewer people? If you, can, if you can do that for a biosimilar, well, why can't you do that for the next innovative blockbuster coming out? So what we're going to start to see is a synergistic effect. The blockbusters are going to start to inform the manufacturing strategies for innovative drugs, and the, the people that are working in some of these regional countries who are coming up with very creative ways of doing it right, but doing it better, um, are also going to be bringing that to uh, uh, U.S. and Europe as well. And. Uh, tell us a little bit about the time cycle that you're in with the 15th annual survey and when you expect those results to be available. Uh, what's, the, what's the big picture there? The big picture on the uh, 15th annual is we're finishing data collection now. Uh, we're we're uh, wrapping that up. If you've got some of your listeners who can are involved as a, in in bioprocessing and understand where they are in terms of capacity, what critical trends are, are associated with single use downstream hiring, et cetera, that would be wonderful to have uh, their participation. What we've done over the years is we've provided a summary of all the data that we get from people that participate. We provide um, a, uh, a, a free trends analysis of what we find, and we also provide a $15 donation to a, uh, a, a charity for a 15th annual. So uh, it's a small uh, thank you for, for people that are capable of, of spending the time to do uh, to, to, to put this in uh, their their experiences in there, and to be able to be uh, to see how their experiences benchmark against the rest of the world. And when do you expect to close data collection? Uh, probably we'll close in um, uh, toward the end of March. Okay. And and the data will be available about a month after that, the end of April. Okay.
So you'll certainly be out before Bio in Boston. Absolutely. And, and, and if not, we'll, we'll have the preliminary. If the final report isn't ready, we'll have preliminary data and, and available for, for Boston and, and, and other meetings. And people can purchase the final report? The, the, the best thing to do is to participate in it. What we want to do is have people participating in this thing uh, and give it away. Our, our objective is this information is uh, it should be available to the industry. We write dozens and dozens and dozens of articles every year uh, that include the data that, that our respondents participate in, um, but those who opt not to participate, somebody's got to pay for, the, uh, for that, and, uh, and if, if, uh, it, it certainly is available in full for purchase, uh, and that's how we end up paying for our, our excellent staff and our analytics uh, to be able to put together a 500-page data-heavy report and make sure that it's valid. Yeah, great value anyway you look at it. Uh, I'm going to go back to advice to early stage companies. Yeah, obviously over the last few years we've seen the CMO business evolve, so there are now a category that you might consider CDMOs that will work with you on uh, even the very beginnings of formulations and, and uh, you know, everything involved in design as well. So um, when is the right time for a startup biotech to engage? With the CMO? Yeah. Uh, that's very, and that's a that's a very good question. When we do the, an analysis of the make versus buy decision associated with small to mid scale companies, um, and we just recently uh, put out a white paper on that to that regard, um, we find that there's a uh, uh, a, a rather logical approach to how companies decide on that make versus buy, and it's not necessarily price driven. It's very much manufacturing strategy driven. Is it a good fit? If it's a fit for what we want to do as a, as a company going forward in our, our strategy, some companies, regardless of size, don't ever want to be a, uh, a manufacturer. Others, regardless of the cost, must be a manufacturer. Uh, and, and so much of the make versus buy decision is based on their corporate strategy. Uh, other issues are, are associated with things that are more operational, like does a CMO have the um, uh, the platform necessary to produce my product because I know I don't. Uh, if if they have the the, the hands, the, the talented hands to to process develop it, and they can do it cost effectively, then that makes it a uh, a logical fit for the make versus buy. But again, it goes back to the question of fit, and it's not a CFO level decision really. It's a it's a manufacturer's decision. The only people that really understand whether or not it's a good fit is going to be a, a, a director or a VP of manufacturing, and they're the ones that are going to make those recommendations on, quote, fit. Uh, I'd like to ask you about another kind of outlier. If there was a maybe a black swan here, I'm not sure if there's a black swan or not. It might be the, after 30 years of trying, some success in gene therapy. So what does that mean for uh, new processes? And what does it maybe represent in terms of the entry of different thinking? Uh, gene and cell and gene therapy are clearly um, the, the darlings of the, the industry right now with some, some approvals. Uh, we see that there are hundreds and hundreds of cell therapy uh, technologies in clinical trials right now. Um, the question is how are these going to actually be manufactured? If the issue is, um, and right now the issue is, is a little bit like it was with um, uh, 
monoclonals back you know, 20 years ago, we need to manufacture something to get a, uh, an approval. And it doesn't really matter how many PhDs are working with pipettes right now and how expensive and silly that is. Uh, right now, the question is uh, proof of concept. Once that, and, and clearly with all these clinical trials going on, a percentage of them are going to be successful. A blockbuster, one blockbuster product, uh, is is going to change the the uh, the way that this pl these platforms are, are are even considered. A challenge, of course, is how do you produce a cell therapy or, or a gene therapy, but primarily a cell therapy, which is where we're going to see a lot of the uh, opportunity at, um, at at a commercial scale. Is it going to be at the bedside? Right now, autologous is the way it's you know being planned out, but that makes economically very little sense. Nobody's going to pay a half million dollars to, uh, to or very few third-party payers are going to say, yes, this, this technology is worth it. Um, and certainly not when you're talking about a single-payer system in, in countries other than the U.S. So a big challenge is going to be how are you going to get, lower those costs. Right now there are not a lot of people that are looking at the manufacturing alternatives. That's a big challenge. Clearly they know that it's going to be single-use, or generally it's going to be single-use technologies, but is it going to be autologous or is it going to be allogeneic? Uh, is it going to be done at a single site by a contract manufacturer? Or is it going to be done at, at multiple regional sites where you've got uh, you know, hospitals and population centers uh, by contract manufacturers? Or is it going to be done if it's you know, uh, you know, simplified enough to be able to do it at the patient bedside? Can it be done there at a non-GMP, in a non-GMP sort of a... Clean and safe environment? Right. Clean and safe. Is, is it going to be a, a device? So all of these issues have not been sorted out yet, partly because if you bring up the fact that um, manufacturing strategy has not been fully evolved, that's not a, a, uh, an, op, an optimal uh, message to be able to bring your investors. Well, or the FDA, right? Or the we've, FDA. We've got a purely, totally portable process that we can drop into the basement of any hospital and have it ready for patients in a couple of days. It hasn't happened. It's, it's more like transfusion medicine. Yeah. Which, you know, transfusion medicine has, a, has you know, quarter, half century of, of history. So it's not like it, that, that this is an issue necessarily if it can be done in a way that's uh, a, a GMP or, or... But those have moved to outpatient centers, right? So could be done that way. Yeah. Uh, okay, crystal ball. Put your crystal ball on. Tell us what you think you'll see over the next couple of years in change in biomanufacturing. Change in biomanufacturing. That's a good question. I think this industry is uh, abhors change uh, because it's a regulated in industry. There's very little the industry likes to see as change on one hand. On the other hand, the industry people especially mammalian cell culture and, and other you know, novel emerging technologies, truly love new technology and new innovative ways of being able to do stuff better. So the, the question is how do you balance the, the industry's persona, its philosophy that change is good, against the regulatory pressures that say we inhibit uh, make you making change in your processes. So uh, fortunately it's a good dynamic and you'll always have that upward pressure. 
uh, on the regulatory side of it. But I think we're going to see change occur slowly. It's going to be it, it occur along with the regulators and not just the FDA, but but others as well. Uh, there's going to have to be a lot of standards setting, and standards are very slow in setting and developing. And it has to be a. This is the key here. I think it has to be a partnership with the suppliers, a big time partnership, where the suppliers realize that they can't innovate without somebody in cells, say cell therapy telling them what they need. And cell therapy has no clue yet, because they're focused on the clinical side of it, what it is they could possibly consider as part of their manufacturing strategy to move things forward. At scale. At, at any scale, yeah. And, and, uh, and, and, and how is that, uh, that going to relate to the actual manufacturing of the product as a CMO, uh, as a hospital, as a, um, uh, you know, perhaps as the innovator? Okay, this is something we ask all of our guests. The kind of flip side of that coin is, what are you worried about? What's keeping you up at night? Very little. This is a, such an exciting industry, and, and you know, having looked at it for uh, you know, 25 years, I, I've only seen the changes moving it forward, albeit somewhat slowly for some people, especially investors' tastes. I see this industry as doing the right thing. Uh, the people in it are dedicated. The industry itself is dynamic. Um, there will always be a new opportunity, whether it be um, emerging regions or vaccine, the requirements for new vaccines, or a cell therapy or a new gene therapy. Uh, I think it's all uh, positive, and it, it's just going to require uh, an understanding of what the future is going to need in terms of the kinds of skills and talents that are, are, are going to build it and continue its, uh, its progression. Uh, Eric, can you tell people how they can access the survey to enroll in it or to find information about it? Absolutely. You can look uh, at our website at www.bioplanassociates.com or just send an email to survey at bioplanassociates.com. Perfect. Eric Langer from Bioplan Associates, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Well, that was it for today's very special episode of Inside the Founder Studio. Thanks again to Eric Langer of Bioplan Associates and to Nixon Peabody for ongoing support of this series. We invite you to support our podcast at patreon.com slash CA Tech Council. And we'll have another episode upcoming soon on our continuing spotlight on Riverside, California. Don't forget to check out our calendar at californiatechnology.org slash events. And if you're not already a member of the California Technology Council, we'd welcome your membership inquiry at californiatechnology.org slash join. Thanks again for listening. Inside the Founders Studio is produced in Northern California by the California Technology Council.